I know I've probably mentioned this before, but I have a deep hatred for opening presents. Now, don't get me wrong, I love receiving them. And so if you looked at that as an indication for me saying, never give me things, that's not what I'm saying at all. Give me all the things you'd like to give me, just please don't wrap them. In fact, if you want to just let me know that you've gotten me something, you can leave it in a place that you'll let me know where it is. You drop it there, you leave, I'll go get it, I'll have time to process it, and then I can express my thanks because I feel this overwhelming sense of dread when I think about the idea of taking a wrapped present in the presence, you get it, present, presence, in the presence of the person who gave it to me, opening it, and then watching how I react. It's a, it's a deep thing inside of me to the point where my wife and kids just give me things now on birthdays and Christmas and that kind of stuff. They don't wrap them. They don't do anything with them. They just give me the thing. And sure, it takes a little bit of the excitement away, but it removes all of the awkwardness. And that's so helpful. Because I'm not good at reacting to things. Even if it's something I really love, my natural expression is not, woo, or anything that would signify to you that that's, I don't know. See, that's what it sounds like when I do it, which that's even worse. And so the idea of doing that in front of someone is troubling. And so I open the present and I say, wow, thank you. And that communicates to the person who gives it to me, oh, you hate it. And I'm like, no, no, I really, I really love it. But there's no going back from that because there was the hesitation and there was the weird noise and the weird face. And so they just assume that I hate it. And no matter how many times I tell them that I love it, they're going to think that I hate it. And even if they start saying, okay, okay, I believe you, then now I've got it in my head that they don't believe me. And then we just can't be friends anymore, all because you wanted to give me a gift. And so I'm just, I just would rather not open presents in front of you. Because there is this built-in knowledge that the way that we respond to things, the way that we react to things, communicates how we feel about it, communicates what we think, communicates what we believe. And that's absolutely true when it comes to our understanding of Christ. As we've been going through the book of Revelation, and we're still in chapter 1. Don't worry, as we get into some of these bigger sections, we're going to start moving a little more quickly. But there is just so much depth that we need to break apart here in chapter 1 as the introduction into this beautiful and mysterious book. We've seen John already start to pull the veil back and reveal to us Jesus. And as we see Jesus revealed for who he is, this picture of Christ demands a response. And I love that this is kind of the rhythm of Revelation. Again, we get so caught up in some of the symbols and some of the things that we don't fully understand that we miss out on the meaning of Revelation as God is saying, this is your Christ. As John is painting a picture to the churches, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is doing. This is how Jesus is going to accomplish those things. This is who Jesus has made you into as the church. And we see this repetition throughout the book of Christ being revealed, of seeing God in his fullness, and it being responded with proper and fitting worship. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, as we come on the heels of sermons where we've seen the revelation of Christ, the beginnings of the revelation of Jesus in this book, when we've seen the reminder and the truth that the church, that we, if you are a follower of Christ, you have been loved by Jesus, and you will always be loved by Jesus, that you have been set free by the blood of Christ, that you've been made into a kingdom of priests meant to do the work of Jesus in the world. When we see all of those things put before our face, we have to ask the question, how do I respond to this kind of Jesus? 
How do I respond to this picture of who Christ is? And we're going to get an indication of that as we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And we're going to see this portrayal of Jesus. And I want to pay close attention to how John responds. Because in the response of the Apostle John, we see a lot about how we should respond to Christ as well. And so I'm going to read the passage. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 9 through 20 today. And as I read through this, and as we pray to begin the sermon today, I want you to be praying that you would be able to see Christ in his fullness to the best that we can this morning as we see him revealed in Scripture. And that God would teach you and prompt us, not only individually but as a church, on how we should respond to Christ and how this should change the way that we worship, the way that we gather together, and the way that we serve. Because when we see what we're going to see this morning, we cannot be unmoved. And so the Word of God says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, there is no way that we're ready for this passage. There's no way that we can ever fully here and now be ready for this passage. But God, I pray that you just prep our hearts. That just like John, we're here in the Lord's day. And God, we ask that you just move us in the spirit to give us wisdom and understanding deeper than we're capable of to see at least a glimpse of the fullness of who Jesus is. And God, as we do, I pray that you don't let it come in one ear and out the other, that you don't let it rest on hard and calloused hearts. But God, you move us to worship and to service and to love. 
And so, Father, we pray that you do indeed speak through your word. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. John begins this passage here by setting his circumstances and his setting. He comes and he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And I love that he paints this incredible picture of exactly where he is as he begins to see this revelation from Jesus. John now, the Apostle John, the disciple that walked with Jesus, is on an island called Patmos. And it's not vacation. He's there in exile on account of Jesus and on account of the Word of God. He was preaching and teaching the gospel all over the region. And because of that, he was uprooted from his home and sent to imprisonment on an island called Patmos. And so that's where John is writing this story. But he gives us a small glimpse of that. But what he tells us that goes even deeper is much more important. Because the real place that John finds himself is on the Lord's day in the Spirit. And so this phrase, when you see it in the New Testament, on the Lord's day, is a recognition of of what we're doing now. It's Sunday. It's the day of resurrection. It's the day of Christian worship. And so John is saying, I'm at church. I'm on the Lord's day here about to receive this vision. But even more than that, he says, I am in the Spirit. And again, we see this veil pulled back, and we're reminded that church and the life of a Christian is a lot deeper than just our physical circumstances, settings, and surroundings, that it goes deeper to the Spirit. And John is saying, not only am I here on the Lord's Day ready to worship, but he is in the Spirit. And yes, of course, all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, at the moment that Jesus saves us and the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. But this is a clear indication that something deeper and more powerful is going on as the Holy Spirit is leading him in his understanding of all the things that he's about to see. And so that's where John is. Something incredible is about to take place. And then he begins to identify himself In the larger context, he identifies himself as a brother and as a partner to those Christians who would read this. He says, hey, guys, I'm writing this to you as family. I'm writing this to you as a brother in Christ, as as a partner in this kingdom of God that we have all been called in this together. And I love how that happens because it's so easy to take, especially the apostles and the New Testament writers, and we say, well, they were different or they were special or they were unique. But the reality here is John is saying, I am a brother in Christ just like the rest of you, and I am a partner in all these things that we're enduring, including the tribulation." Let's pull off for a second, right? Because there are going to be times when we get through the book of Revelation that there are going to be some words that make us stop, especially if you've grown up in or around church, especially if you've read certain types of fiction literature about some of this stuff. There are going to be some words that grab your attention and be like, oh, I know that one. That's a Revelation word. That's an end times word. What does that mean? And the word tribulation is one of those. When you see someone talk about tribulation, especially in the context of Revelation, we start getting weird ideas and go all over the place. And so we start to think, what does this mean? 
Am I pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pan-trib? What is the trib that I'm supposed to be? Preacher, tell me, what is it supposed to mean? And so let's just stop and take a moment and look at the surrounding here because I think this word is crucially important to laying the foundation for how we understand the rest of the book. Again, a lot of times, especially in American culture and theology, when we see the phrase tribulation, we immediately think of some big horrific thing that's going to happen sometime off in the distant future. But as John is teaching here, I think we get an understanding of what this means because he doesn't say a partner in tribulation, but he says a partner in the tribulation, which means that John believes that he is experiencing this tribulation that we've turned into something off in the distant future. John is saying, I am a partner with you in the tribulation right here and right now. And so this is one of those places where we can move and and you can disagree. It's fine. It's an open-hand, closed-handed thing. But based on the context of this passage and how we'll see through the rest of the book, this understanding, the understanding that I have of this tribulation with the the, with the article before it, is a picture of the suffering and the endurance of the Christian church from the moment that it began at Pentecost until the moment when Christ comes to make everything right and everything new. That all of us, in some form or fashion, are experiencing the tribulation is the church of Christ is being tested and run through the ringer for the sake of the gospel. This is what John is experiencing. And he says, listen, I'm an apostle, but I'm not beyond this. I am experiencing this. I am a partner with you in the tribulation on exile because of Christ and because of the word of God. So now let's go back to it. He identifies himself as a partner in the tribulation that the whole church, universal and throughout history, is enduring. And then he gets his first vision. He starts to see this big, beautiful truth that God is revealing to him. He says, I turned to see the voice that was standing to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. There's our first image. What does this mean? What is this a picture of these seven lampstands? Well, thankfully, he interprets this for us at the end. Jesus gives us the exact interpretation here where he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so this is going to be really important language and terminology as we move forward in these letters to the churches that we're going to be going through over the next several weeks. These seven churches are represented as lampstands, shining the light of Christ in a dark and broken world. But also, if you're here a couple weeks ago, we looked at the numerology of Revelation and the fact that seven is one of these really important numbers that represents wholeness, that represents completeness. And so these seven lampstands not only represent the seven churches that we're about to see these letters go out to, but it represents the fullness of Christ's church, of all the people who have put their faith in Jesus before, standing as lamps in the middle of this dark world. And I love this correlation here. Because John talks about these seven lampstands, and he's talked about the fact that he's a partner in tribulation with these churches that he's writing to. And so we have this picture of the church of God going through tribulation, but they're not alone. Because look what happens here. He sees this vision of the seven lampstands, but then in verse 13, it says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of a man. 
And I love this language because I told you that John throws back to the Old Testament all the time. And this particular passage, as we see this picture of lampstands and fire and one like the Son of Man standing in their midst, it takes us back to another exile. Not John on Patmos, but the people of God, the people of Israel on exile in a place called Babylon. And that king in this place called Babylon demanded that all these people bow down and worship his image. But there were three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they refused to bow the knee because they served only one king. And because of that, because of their crime, they were taken and they were going to be thrown into a furnace. And they were boldly filled with faith, ready to die for their true king. And so they're thrown into the furnace, but then what do we see? In the midst of the fire, they see the shadows not of three men, but of four. And the one in the furnace with them looked like the Son of Man. And so we see that Christ has always been present with his people in the midst of tribulation, and that's no different here and now. Again, the Son of Man is standing with his people and enduring with his church. Christ is in the midst of these lampstands. And this is this incredible reminder that wherever two or more are gathered in his name, Christ is here with us also. John is saying to the churches, I know what you're going through. I know the struggle that you're enduring. I know the tribulation that you're feeling from every side. But pay attention here because you're a light on a city. You are a city on a hill. You are a light in the darkness, but you are not alone. Christ is with you. But I wonder... I wonder how often we meet without Christ. I wonder how often we come together on the Lord's day. How often we come together as a church and we walk in and we go through the motions without ever realizing that Jesus is here with us at all times and through all things. How often do we come and sing songs and pray prayers and confess and hear scripture over and over again without once acknowledging the fact that Christ is here present with us? It's not fiction. It's not an idea. It's not our imagination. We have a testimony of Scripture that if we are in Christ, gathered in his name, then right here, right now, Jesus is with us. That's exciting, yeah? Christ is here with us right now. And that's cause for us to rejoice. That's cause for us not to sit still and acknowledge that half-heartedly, but to recognize that the God of the universe... The one who all things were created through and for and by. He is here with us and we are in his presence and in his midst. So no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what your struggles, no matter what your present physical reality, no matter how apathetic we may find ourselves, Christ is here in our midst. And that is cause to rejoice in our midst here and now and wherever we go. And if we are not worshiping like Christ is here, if we're not gathering while Christ is here, then there is no purpose of us being here at all. Because the reason we're here today is, yeah, to be together and, yes, to sing some songs, but we're doing all of that because Christ has called us together to be one in him, through him, and with him because Christ is here with his church. But John knew Jesus. John knew what it was like to sit in the physical presence of Christ. And we've talked a little bit about John's relationship with Jesus. He was in the inner circle of Christ. 
There were the disciples, and then there were the disciples. There was the one that, that Jesus pulled together to be his source of strength and encouragement in his weakest and most vulnerable times, the one that he shared these deep truths of eternity with. John walked with Jesus on a daily basis. He served with Jesus. He was served by Jesus. He saw Jesus before the resurrection. He saw Jesus after the resurrection. And so it would be safe for us to say that John really knows Jesus, maybe better than anyone at this point could have claimed to know Jesus. And yet, when John starts talking about Jesus, it doesn't sound like he knows him. When we look at verses 13 and 16, it doesn't sound like describing someone you know. In fact, it doesn't sound like John is describing anyone who has ever existed. Because this is what he says about Jesus, the one that he knew, at least he thought he knew. He said, In the midst of the lampstands is one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is John. He knows Jesus. And yet he's struggling to even find the words to describe what he sees. So often, if you've been in church or around church for any period of time, it can become easy to feel a familiarity with Jesus. We come into a church service or we spend time in prayer and we're like, hey man, how's it going? How's it going? Everything, how's life in heaven? Jesus, and we picture the Jesus that we can wrap our minds around and we reduce him to the lowest common understanding of what he could be. And that's the kind of Jesus that we want to interact with. Because that's the kind of Jesus that we can relate to. That's the kind of Jesus that we can just dive in and have breakfast with and just spend a few moments in prayer and move on about our day and then kind of forget that he exists for a little while because he's not that big and he's not that impressive. But we may know Jesus. But John is revealing here that we don't know Jesus in the fullness of who he is. John's writing to these seven churches and every church that would read this letter from that point on. And he's saying, yes, you know Jesus, at least who he, he's revealed himself to be up until this point. But now he's taking that curtain and he's pulling it back and he's showing you the fullness of who he is. And I don't think you're ready for this. And we need to learn to lose our casualty with Christ. Yes, we can come boldly into the presence of God. Yes, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Yes, we can cry out to Jesus and cling to Jesus. We can call ourselves friends of Christ, but we dare not start believing that we know everything that Jesus is and that we can possibly grasp who he reveals himself to be. We need to come to Jesus with a sense of awe. We need to come to Jesus with a sense of mystery. And we have to ask ourselves, is this the Jesus that I believe in? Is this the Jesus that I claim to worship? Is this the Jesus that I fix my eyes on as I worship and as I pray? Because the reality is this is the Jesus who is. And if we are worshiping anyone else, we're not worshiping Christ. I was listening to a sermon by Francis Chan where he was talking about the holiness of God. 
and how we just miss what that really is. And he was talking about prayer. And he said, when I pray, I always stop and I wait for about 30 seconds, which was reassuring to me because anytime I've heard Francis Chan teach or speak, the prayers always seem it's like he's buffering maybe, that there's just this, this lag in between when he wants to pray and when he actually starts praying. And he says, I do that because I need to stop and make sure I know the one to whom I speak. I need to stop and make sure that I am praying to the God who is and not the God who I want to be or the God that I want to believe in. He stops and just refocuses saying, God, show me who you are so I can pray to you like you are. And we need to learn to do that. It's easy to just throw our understanding of Jesus in our back pocket because we've heard the stories. We've heard the Gospels. Maybe you've even read through the book of Revelation to the point where it can start falling on deaf ears as well, where we think, got it, I've checked off all the basics. I know Jesus. I can just move on from that point to each and every day saying, I need to know more of who Christ is. I need to recognize that I can't fully grasp the majesty of who he is. And so we're going to do that now. We're just going to stop for a moment. And I want you, whether in an attitude of prayer or reading through these verses again or just in a moment of silence asking the Holy Spirit to speak, let's just all take a moment right now and start to realize who Jesus is as we prepare to see how we should respond to Jesus. And so let's just do that right now. I wonder if we had some sort of game film for church, if we acted like a sports team who plays the game and they come back together a day later and they watch film of their performance and try to figure out how did we do, I wonder what that would look like. If we came back in after lunch, we go eat lunch, we come back in, and then on the screen, we watch everything that happens. And maybe we have one of those fancy monitors where we can grab things and be like, here's what Alex did, and here's what Don did, and here's what Hannah was doing. We kind of zoom in and look at everything that's going on, and we start to watch our performance. I wonder what it would look like. The way that we enter church. The way that we worship, the way that we pray, the way that we talk to one another, the way that we talk about Jesus. I imagine that even on the days when we're most excited to come into the house of God, it still probably looks and feels very casual from start to finish. But John once had a casual relationship with Jesus. Not only did he do all the ministry stuff with Jesus, he did all the life stuff with Jesus. John fished with Jesus. He ate breakfast with Jesus. In fact, he ate breakfast with Christ after the resurrection. He sat down on a beach and ate with the resurrected Jesus. They reclined at tables together. They would have laughed together. John saw Jesus even in his most broken and most vulnerable moments. And so John had a very casual relationship with Jesus, but not now. Look at verse 17. 
John turns around and he sees this incredible vision of the lampstands. And then he sees Christ in their midst in the fullness of who he is. He sees this indescribable Jesus. And verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John's standing, doing his little clerk work, writing his book, just taking everything down, listening to the voice. Okay, check, 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 right to these churches. Turns around, sees Jesus, boom, gone, out, on his face, like he's dead. Guys, we need to learn to fall on our faces. We need to learn to see Jesus and respond accordingly. And the first posture towards Christ is not, hey man, the first posture towards Christ isn't even, you are so awesome. The first posture towards Jesus, when we get a glimpse into who he really is, should be to fall on our faces and say, oh my Lord, you are too good for me to be in your presence. You are too holy for me to wrap my mind around who you are. Like Peter, when he saw that first glimpse in the deity of Christ, he looked at Jesus and he says, get away from me because I am not worthy to be in your presence. That's what an unrevealed Jesus does to us. That's what a fully portrayed Christ does to broken, flawed sinners like us. The magnitude of his holiness reveals our lack thereof. The fullness of his power reveals how weak we are. And when John saw this image of Christ, he couldn't even be alive. He was so broken and humbled and overwhelmed. Listen to that last phrase that he uses to describe him. He says, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, which is intense enough. And then he says, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I can't take a picture if I'm looking slightly in the direction of the sun where it may be. Because then it looks like this. And no one wants to see my face like that. And so there are a multitude of family pictures where I'm going, because the sun is kind of in the direction where I may be looking. When the eclipse comes by, you get these little cards or glasses, right? You remember that thing that we did? Because they told you, if you look at the sun, when the eclipse goes by, your head will explode or something strange like that will happen. I'm not sure exactly what the result would be, but I was told, don't ever look at the eclipse because the sun that is millions of miles away could mess you up possibly forever. And now John is saying, when I looked at the face of Christ, it was like the sun at full strength. What would this do to you? What would it do to me? Maybe a better question is, why doesn't it? Why are we able to talk about this Jesus without any sense of being overwhelmed or moved or broken or humbled? Think about the first proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament. As shepherds were keeping watch over their flock by night. And this multitude of angels gathered over the top of them, singing glory to God in the highest. And what did the shepherds do? They didn't jump up and say, awesome, this is so cool. I can't believe we get to see this. This is amazing. God, you're good. They saw this happen, and they were afraid, and they fell to the ground. As we see that the gospel and Jesus himself are, should be overwhelming to broken sinners. We also see what happens next. John says, I saw him. 
and I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me. That's intense, right? It's not just me that sees how incredible that is. This Jesus that John just described in these overwhelming, kind of horrifying terms, John describes this Jesus. He falls on the ground as though he's dead, and that Jesus, oh, the whole picture, sun, like, face like a sun, sword coming out of the mouth, feet as burnished bronze, the white hair, the white eyes, the eyes of flame, the whole thing, he bends down to where dead John is laying on the floor, and he puts his hand on his shoulder. And he says, fear not. That should sound familiar to us. Because every Christmas we see that story of the shepherds who fall down afraid in the presence of God. And the angels look at them and they say, fear not. For I bring you good news and tidings of great joy because Christ has come into the world. And we see that repeated here, that this idea of fear not is the banner under which the gospel is laid from start to finish. Because we come into contact with this amazing, overwhelming, holy Jesus, and we're humbled, and we're broken, and we fall down, and we say, I'm not worthy of you. I'm not worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of your grace and mercy. I am worth nothing but falling on the ground dead before you. And then Jesus puts his hands on us, and he says, fear not. And we see this beautiful picture of the God of the universe, too amazing to describe, comforting an exile. The proper response to Christ should be to be humbled and broken by the truth of who Jesus is. And then we'll find that as we do, Jesus lifts us up. I wonder if our worship reflects this in our lives. If we go through the process each and every time that we come into the presence of Christ where we are humbled and broken and then Jesus lifts us up, but it doesn't stop there. Because remember for the shepherds, they were humbled, they were broken, they were overwhelmed. The angels said, fear not, good tidings, great joy, the baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, and then the shepherds got up and they went to see Jesus. For John, here, he turns around, sees Jesus, falls dead. Jesus lifts him up and says, fear not, now take some notes. Now you've got work to do. Now you can be in my presence because I've touched you and made you whole, and now you have work to do. And so our response to the gospel should look like that, a period of humbleness, brokenness, and confession, being lifted up and strengthened and encouraged by the Jesus that says, fear not because I have loved you and I have set you free by the power of my blood. I have made you into a kingdom of priests and now you have work to do. And so we can stand reformed and renewed in the image of Christ and going out and doing the work he's called us to do. We need to learn to pray and to strain for this to be true. Because like we talked about last week, it's easy to get caught up in the casual routine of ritual and just to take Christ and church and everything involved there as part of what we do. But that is not who we're called to be. It's not how we're called to worship. It's just not the gospel. We need to learn to see and to worship Jesus for who he is and never let that go. 
Jesus says, you don't have to fear because, yes, all those things that you see about me here and now are true. But he also says that I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I am the same one who was born in the manger, born under Roman rule and occupation, who moved through the countryside teaching about the kingdom of God. I'm the one who called you into this new life. I'm the one who died for you, but now here I am living forevermore, the first word and the last, and I am about to show you something that's going to blow your mind and pay attention because you and all the churches of Christ have a role and a responsibility in this. We cannot miss the fact here that Jesus is revealing himself to the churches, to us, to be worshipped by us. He says, write these things that you have seen and those that are about to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we get this revelation of who Christ is. We get this recentering of sorts to help us realize that we don't know all the things that we thought we knew and we're not doing as well as we thought we were and we're not worshiping in the fullness that we thought we could. And Jesus is saying, this is who I am and now I'm about to give you some instructions on who you should be. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at these letters to these seven churches. Some that did things well. Others that did things not so well. Most of which who did a combination of both. And each of these letters isn't just written to the church that it's named for, but it's written to us as well. And these are are good litmus tests for us to see the way in which we live and maybe call out some things that are broken inside of us individually and as a church. And also it'll be time to be strengthened and encouraged about the things that we are doing well as we continue pursuing after Christ. But we can't get there without starting here. And so my encouragement for me and for each and every one of us is when we come together each and every Sunday, we're not coming casually. We're not coming like it's any other Sunday, but we are coming on the Lord's Day to meet with God's people and to worship this Jesus. And that means we have to take all of our expectations of what could be and throw those out the door. That we need to take all of our hindrances and all the things that hold us back and our shame and our guilt. And we need to come each and every week ready to be humbled by the gospel, ready to be raised up by the gospel, and ready to worship Christ with God's people in the fullness and the freedom and in the spirit that he's given us to do that in. And then to leave here each and every week renewed by that gospel to go and to do the work that he's called us to do, and we should be satisfied with absolutely nothing less. 